Thanks, guys. Uh, so we recently celebrated our grandson's uh, second birthday just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we had a big party in the backyard, complete with a petting zoo and pony rides. Uh, it was an, a farm-themed uh, party. Uh, Jacob loves animals, especially farm animals. Uh, this is a video of him riding a pony. Uh, as you can obviously see, this is not his first time on horseback. Uh, he's quite an experienced horseman. Uh, this is actually a second time on the, on the back of a horse. But, but we, had, we had lots and lots of, of animals there. Apparently, the word got out about an animal-themed party because just a couple of days before the party, we had an animal show up that was not on the guest list. Uh, he apparently decided he'd just invite himself and actually move in. Uh, we, we had smelled a little creature, a little critter a, a few days before, but thought it was probably just passing through, as they often do. But this one, as you can see, was determined to move in, and he wasn't shy about it. This was in the middle of the day, with, with all of us standing in the yard. He, he's just making himself at home. Well, I had to do something because as cute and as adorable as he was, uh, he was still a skunk. Uh, and it wouldn't be good to have an extroverted skunk making his home under the shed during a party that had a bunch of kids running around. So we called animal control and they told us that there was really nothing that they could do. Uh, but they said not to worry, skunks can be very very good to have around. They eat rats and other pests, and if you leave them alone, they are usually not very aggressive. And I explained uh, that we have two pugs that are themselves very friendly and outgoing that spend a good deal of time in their backyard, and I wasn't sure how the skunk would interpret their wanting to play. And besides, we had a birthday you know, party planned for just, in just a couple of days, and there'd be all kinds of other animals in the backyard, including a bunch of children, uh, not to mention adults who would not be entertained if the skunk decided to make an appearance, uh, whether visibly or odorously. Um, animal control turned out to be not very helpful at all, so, so I went to work. I set up a motion-activated camera that alerted me when the skunk left the shed, and as soon as I was sure it was gone, I got busy uh, making stuff to, to block its access to the underside of our shed. And that's when this happened. Uh, I'm untangling some fencing to, to cut and put underneath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fortunately, it did not spray me. Let's, let's watch that again. Here I am, untangling. Um, cute little guy. <laughs> it looks like it's spraying, but... Yeah. I, every time I watch that, it's like, how, how did I avoid... Uh, getting sprayed. A after this, the skunk actually dug in and became rather militant in its refusal to leave. In fact, uh, here's an artist's rendition of uh, <laughs> the, re representing the general demeanor of the skunk from that point on. Um, I tried several tactics to drive it out of there and finally resorted to shooting water underneath the shed, which did drive it away. 
but not before it had launched a counteroffensive by emptying its scent glands. Uh, fortunately, none of us took a direct hit, including our dogs. Despite that, um, the odor overwhelmed our house, our yard, our clothes, the neighborhood, everything. See, as cute and cuddly as they may sometimes seem, skunks have the ability to not just be stinky themselves, but to transfer their stink onto others so that everyone in the vicinity knows there's an annoyed, unhappy, bitter, irritated skunk in the area, and y'all just better stay out of its way. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the attitudes that we human beings carry around um, they tend to work the same way, don't they? Our attitudes, for better or for worse, our attitudes affect and impact those around us. When we're unhappy or annoyed or upset, we tend to transfer that unhappiness or annoyance to the people around us. And the opposite is also true, that when we're happy uh, and, and joyful, that tends to transfer to others as well. Now, most of the time, skunks don't really stink that much. This particular skunk came up behind me, seemed to curl up at my feet almost playfully, and, and I didn't even know it was there. I'm still just shocked. My peripheral vision is usually pretty good, but I did, uh, but I did have my reading glasses on, which, which makes anything further than three feet away really blurry. At least that's my excuse. Uh, but I didn't smell it at all, even though it was right at my feet. There are probably some skunks that just stink all the time. You can smell them coming from three blocks away, and, and sadly, I think we've all known people like that. You can almost feel them coming, can't you? They just seem to carry with them a, a, an odor of negativity or irritability just most of the time. And again, the same is true of joy-filled or peace-filled people. They just seem to carry that fragrance around most of the time and have a way of passing that on to others. Well, we're in a series called Getting Ripe with God, where we are focusing on a list of nine character qualities or attributes that the Apostle Paul outlines in his letter to the Christians living in a Roman province of Galatia in the first century. And here's an excerpt from that letter. In fact, this is the list that he outlines in that letter. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's just say these out loud together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He, he lists nine qualities that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of someone who is under the control or the influence of the Holy Spirit. So obviously, we should all make this our highest aim, our, our primary goal, to live under the influence or control of the Holy Spirit as, as opposed to living under the influence or, or control of something else. And the list is very long of, of possible substitutes. So how can we make sure we live under the control or influence of the Holy Spirit? Well, in the first week of this series, I argued that humility 
is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. Humility is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. It is, it is step one in living under the control or the influence of the Holy Spirit. Humility is simply recognizing the reality that you came from the dirt. You came from the dirt or the earth. In fact, that's what the word humility means. It means earth or dirt. Uh, we all came, I mean, that's the root of the word humility, humus, which means, you know, earth or dirt. We all came from the dirt, and any good, good or virtue that we have in us, we cannot take credit for. It was given to us by virtue of the fact we were formed from the earth, from the dirt, but formed in the image and likeness of our loving and crea uh, gracious creator. Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he says this, what makes you superior to others? Was, was a rhetorical question. Nothing makes them superior to others. In fact, they are not superior to others, and neither are uh, me and you, though we often may think that we are in some way superior to others. Paul says, what makes you superior to others? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if, you, if, if all you have is from God, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? See, humility is just remembering that you really have no gifts, no qualities, no abilities or talents or character traits that you really can take credit for. It's all been given you as a gift. Even your ambition to keep learning and growing is a gift. The only thing that you can maybe take credit for is your decision, the exercise of your will, your, your choosing to embrace the reality of your humble state. Surrender yourself completely to God and let his Holy Spirit produce his own character. You can maybe take credit for surrendering yourself to God. See, humility is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. When there is humility, the fruit of the Spirit grows natu naturally, almost effortlessly. Until there is humility, well, the fruit of the Spirit will not come easily for us if it will come at all. Now, you might produce other things because for every fruit of the Spirit, there are counterfeits. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Counterfeit fruits of the Spirit. Take the first fruit, love, for example. What is the counterfeit of love? There are so many of them, aren't there, when you think about it? This world is so confused when it comes to love. Fewer words have been more corrupted and distorted than the word love. It's been so diluted and so distorted that, that among other things, it's become synonymous with sex, which isn't a, you know, sex isn't a bad thing, but it's not love. I mean, even gratuitous sex, we'd call it making love, and it's not what it is. Recreational sex, which is anything but love. It is, it's using and abusing another individual, creating God's image and likeness purely for the satiation of your sensual appetites. That's not love. In fact, when you think about it, that's kind of on par with cannibalism, right? You're taking bites out of one another to satisfy your own hunger or lust. Not long ago, it was actually called getting a piece. Remember that? I don't know why that idiom went out of style. Maybe because people started realizing that it was way too accurate. Another person literally taking a piece of you when they, in reality, don't value you, don't see you as an individual worthy of any kind of dignity or honor or respect. You're just a piece of flesh. That's not love. 
The word love today has come to mean anything you derive pleasure or satisfaction or sensual gratification from, which is purely selfish, which is the exact opposite of authentic love. People say, I love chocolate. You know, I love football. I love my dogs. I love shopping. I love my wife. <laughs> Same word to you describe all those things. There's, there are a lot of counterfeits to the love that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us. Jesus said, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's the exact opposite of selfishness, to lay down your life for whom you love. One of Jesus' closest followers, a man who came to be known as the Apostle John, he wrote, this is real love. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And then he goes on to say, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. Or as Jesus put it, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So he sets the bar kind of high when it comes to love. But this is what genuine love is, laying down your life. There's a lot of counterfeit loves circulating in our society today, in our world today. What, what, about, what about joy? What, what's a counterfeit of joy? Last week I made the case that, that happiness is, is a counterfeit of joy. Why do I say that? Well, what are the characteristics of a counterfeit? It looks like the real thing, feels like the real thing, smells like the real thing, but it just doesn't last like the real thing, does it? I mean, you might be tempted to think that if you had an uninterrupted supply of the counterfeit, you wouldn't need the real. But that's the problem. You can never count on an uninterrupted supply of happiness. You can, you can never count on it. In fact, you can virtually count on your supply of happiness being interrupted on a regular basis. That's just life. Circumstances change. Hardship and suffering are a regular part of life. Trials and difficulties are unavoidable, and these things tend to interrupt our supply of happiness. But that's the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is something that gets inside of you and stays inside of you even in the middle of hardship and suffering, even when life isn't going the way you expected. There's an undercurrent of joy that feeds the springs of happiness in your life, come what may. See, many don't believe that's even possible. You know, nonsense. How can anyone experience happiness when life is hard? Even, you know, when there's suffering and setbacks. I mean, it's just not realistic. Oh, but it is. It is. Just as humility is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows, gratitude is the sky. It's the sunshine and rain without which nothing can grow. Gratitude opens your eyes to the reality that though you came from the dirt, your destiny is to grow upward toward the sky. The earth is finite, the sky is infinite, which means you literally have infinite reasons to be grateful, even though this life is often dirty and dusty and muddy. And here's the thing, gratitude always produces joy. Not, not, not just a happiness because things are going the way you want 
it to in the moment, but a deep abiding joy that runs through the very core of your being. Thank you, God, for, for the innumerable blessings that you have showered on, down on me that I don't deserve. That is something you can pray even in the middle of a challenging or painful situation. Thank you, God, for the many blessings you've given me that I don't deserve. That produces joy. Here's the deal. You can't always just choose joy by sheer willpower. But you can always choose gratitude. You can, you can choose to be grateful even in hard times. And, and just simply start recounting your blessings and remembering where you came from. And when you choose gratitude, gratitude produces joy, and it actually produces a bunch of other good stuff too. Earth and sky, the prerequisites for growing the good fruit of the Spirit, humility and gratitude, earth and sky. We must properly orient ourselves to both, humility and gratitude, two things that are always instantly accessible to every single one of us, not things you must attain or, or strive for, not things that are out of your reach, but things that you surrender to by letting go of your pride and your sense of entitlement. And what freedom and life there is when you take that step and just keep taking that step every single day. So today, in the few minutes we have remaining, we're going to focus on the third fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Peace. Peace. And you'll begin to notice how all of these fruits of the Spirit cross over into one another. They all help feed the other. There's this amazing synergy between the fruits of the Spirit. Now, last week we looked at, the Paul, uh, at Paul's admonishment to always be full of joy in the Lord. He said, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Now, let's look at that verse again. Uh, here's from the New Century uh, translation. Be full of the joy, be full of joy in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again, be full of joy. Words from someone who knew a thing or two about hardship and suffering and unfavorable circumstances. He tells us again and again, be full of joy in the Lord. Always, how do I do that when things are going so bad? You choose to be grateful. You choose to remember that you're not entitled to anything, that you actually came from the dirt, and that God has chosen to give you so many blessings you can't even count. You choose to focus your mind to get your eyes off of your hardship and focus your mind on all the things that God has lovingly, graciously given you. Be full of joy in the Lord always. Let's keep reading this passage. Let everyone see that you are super smart and very talented. No, no, that's not what he said. Let everybody see uh, that you are successful and way above average when it comes to most things. No, that's not what he says either. Uh, I mean, Paul, Paul could have, he could have written anything here. You know, what, what's he going to put, put in here? Let everybody see what, um, you know, uh, what did he say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says, let everyone see that you are gentle and kind. Seems to imply here that being full of joy results in your being gentle and kind. Like I said, there's this amazing, amazing synergy between the fruits of the Spirit. 
He says, the Lord is coming soon. Paul reminds them that when the Lord comes, literally none of that other stuff's going to matter. You know, your smarts, your talent, worldly success or accomplishment, it will fall off the tree like leaves on, at the onset of winter. Uh, it's just not going to matter. It's nothing you're going to carry with you into, out of this world into the next life. Kindness and gentleness, however, well, that's the stuff you're going to carry with you into eternity. That's the stuff that's going to remain. That's the stuff that really matters. Paul continues, do not worry about anything except, of course, actual things. I mean, surely Paul doesn't mean don't worry about anything. Get real. Because, I mean, there's really some things that, you know, it's pretty normal to worry about, right? So he doesn't mean to don't worry about anything. I mean, that would be kind of a little extreme, don't you think? Get real. How, he couldn't possibly mean that. Sorry, Paul, I keep interrupting you. What were you saying? Don't worry about anything but pray and ask God for everything you need always giving thanks because gratitude is the sunshine and rain without which no fruit can grow when should we give thanks when 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 something good happens when, when you get what you want no Paul says we should always always give thanks because there is always something to be thankful for and thankfulness gratitude produces joy going on uh, always give thanks and God's peace which is so great we can't understand it will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as a result God's peace is going to keep or guard your mind Paul says, God's peace which transcends human understanding. God's peace which defies logical explanation. God's peace which is beyond our comprehension will guard or keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul, why are you so at peace? I mean, people are trying to kill you. <laughs> they, they, they've, they've thrown you in prison and you haven't done anything wrong. They're telling lies about you. You barely have enough to eat or drink. Your enemies are, are slandering you. They are determined to see you executed. You're shipwrecked on an island after a two-week storm in the middle of the sea. You got bit by a poisonous snake. Why are you so at peace? He would say, because my peace comes from God and not from this world. And it is beyond logical explanation. It's just something that keeps growing in me, making me a joy-filled, loving person. After all, isn't this exactly what Jesus promised when he said this? He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as this world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. and Don't let them be afraid. Now, some translations seem to suggest that, that what Jesus is saying here is that he is giving us a, a peace that cannot be found in this world, a kind of peace that this world will never be able to give you. Other translations suggest that he is giving you peace, but giving it in a way that is unlike 
the way the world gives things. There's a little subtle difference there. And the original Greek is not really clear what Jesus actually meant here. But I don't think there's any reason why he couldn't have meant both. He's giving us his peace which is a kind of peace unlike any kind of peace you might find in the world, and he's giving it to you in a way unlike the world gives you things. Which, how does the world give you things? Unreliably, inconsistently, unpredictably, superficially. See, his peace is otherworldly. It is literally out of this world kind of, it's an out of this world kind of, it's out of this world, it's an idiom popular in the 1960s, out of this world. You don't hear it so much anymore, or, or you know, it even like out of sight. Man, that was, that's so out of sight. It's, it's way out, man. That's really far out. Why did, we, why did we think in the 60s that when something was really awesome, it was some distance away? You know, it's far out, you know? I don't know. But Jesus himself said the peace he gives would not come from this world, but from another realm entirely, but not far away so that it's out of your reach. It's just, it's easily within your reach. The peace he intends to give us is better, far superior to any kind of peace you might obtain. And this is going to be tough for you to believe, but track with me here. The peace he gives you is superior to any peace you might get from having plenty of financial security or job security, or even armed security, or having the right people in the White House, or strong, a strong enough military, or, or whatever. It, it, anything else we could possibly think that this world might, might give us that would assure some peace of mind, the peace that Jesus gives us is better than that. He said he would give us a peace that is beyond our understanding, our comprehension, and not something that this world can give you. But it grows, it grows in the soil of humility and is watered by the rains of gratitude. No humility, no gratitude, no peace, no peace. But when you are humble and grateful, when you choose that as your posture, when, you, when your eyes begin uh, to focus on who God is and how big he is and how capable he is and how much he loves you and how he has the very hairs of your head number, numbered, you begin to experience peace. And you remember that he will never leave you or forsake you. It's an otherworldly kind of peace that begins to spring up inside of you. What exactly is peace? I mean, what is it? Is it simply the absence of worry and anxiety or fear, or is it being free from conflict, interpersonal conflict or military conflict or inner psychological conflict? What is peace? Well, the Bi in the Bible, there's two words for peace. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace was the word shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for peace is erene. Shalom is still used today as a traditional greeting among the Jews, um, as it has been for literally thousands of years. And it, and it means not just inner serenity. It means, it means wholeness, completeness, perfect well-being and soundness. The Greek word, though not used as commonly as a greeting, it has a very similar meaning. So when Jesus said he was giving us his peace, 
a peace this world could never give. He was saying that he was giving us his shalom, his, his perfect state of well-being, his wholeness and soundness, his completeness. So biblical peace is not just a serene feeling. It's not just peace and quiet or the absence of conflict or chaos. It's even better than that. It is the idea that even in the midst of conflict and chaos and war and trouble and external threats, you can have the complete assurance that you are in fact safe, sound, whole, and complete, and nothing can threaten you. Nothing can ultimately harm you. And that even though you may occasionally be hurt along the way, nothing can harm you because you are in God's perfect, protective care. What do you mean, Jim, that I can be hurt but not harmed? It sounds like a contradiction. Uh, Listen, being hurt and being harmed are two different things. A doctor may hurt you, but he will not harm you. Sometimes treating a disease or an illness may hurt. It may involve pain, but it will not harm you. It will only help you. Same thing for dentists, probably more so. When treating a problem, the dentist may hurt you, but he's not going to harm you. And this is what the psalmist means when he says this. He says, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. See, here's the peace that God wants you to possess all day, every day, deep inside of you. A peace that nothing can harm you. Nothing can break you. Nothing can even threaten you because he will never leave you or forsake you. He has the very hairs of your head numbered. We tend to think of of peace as the absence of trouble. But peace, real peace, shalom, is an inner rest and confidence in the midst of trouble. And that's what God wants you to to know and experience and and possess. There was a contest uh, where artists were commissioned to paint a portrait of peace. There were dozens of entries uh, picturing, you know, peaceful meadows and, and glowing sunsets and beautiful, you know, seascapes. But the winning painting was of a waterfall, a raging torrential waterfall, powerful. Uh, but, but in the upper right-hand corner of the painting, a tree branch extended over that waterfall, and there in the branch was a nest with a mama bird feeding her young. That was peace. In the midst of the roar and the spray, the force and power of a mighty waterfall, there was safety, there was confidence, there was contentment. This is peace, not the absence of trouble, but an inner confidence and security in the midst of it. Have you seen that meme or heard it? You know, you have peace when everybody around you is in a panic. Maybe you don't understand the problem. You heard that? Listen, God understands the problem completely, yet he is that complete peace. God is peaceful. He's never worried. He's never anxious, never hurried, never panicked. He is at peace, and he wants you, he wants you to have his peace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So so what is counterfeit peace? What might be counterfeit peace? 
Go ahead and shout it out. What do you think? Counterfeit to peace. What is it? Ice? Did you say ice cream? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not, not seeing that, but uh, creative thought. Interesting. Here, here's what I came up with. Here's counterfeit peace. Apathy, indifference, maybe laziness, escapism. It's the counterfeit peace. It's aiming to experience peace by avoiding or eliminating any and all kinds of situations that may involve stress, which usually means attempting to avoid all responsibility because responsibility can lead to stress, and stress and peace are polar opposites, or so you think. They're not actually at all. Stress can, be, can actually be very good for you when framed correctly. Stress can be uh, 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 something that's very good for you. Uh, but we often think that stress is bad and, and it, it ruins peace. It's not true. But when you have that mentality, that mindset, you, you tend to just avoid uh, things. You, you, you hide. You retreat and escape. You stay home. You lose yourself in a TV show or a video game and isolate yourself as much as possible from the rest of the world, all the bad stuff out there. See, that's not peace. That's escapism. That's hiding your head in the sand, and in doing so, maybe hiding your talent in the ground. If you think about that parable that Jesus taught, and you know how things worked out for that guy that hid his talent in the sand. See, that's running from accountability. It's the kind of shrinking back from life that God said he takes no pleasure in. My righteous ones, here's a scripture for you. My righteous ones will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. See, it's the pursuit of peace, but apart from God. And therefore, it's the pursuit of a counterfeit peace. The word apathy literally means unfeeling. It, it's an unwillingness to feel and to respond to the pain of others or the pain of this world and is therefore unloving. It's an unwillingness to enter in to other people's pain. See, God calls us to live life to the full, which means embracing all the struggles, all the hardships inherent in life, marriage, family, children, managing finances, getting along with people, loving people who are difficult to love, entering into the problems and hardships of other, that other people are dealing with which is exactly what Jesus did for you, didn't he? For you and me. But he did so possessing perfect peace, knowing that nothing could threaten him, nothing could harm him, nothing could take his life. In fact, he made a point of saying, nobody takes my life. My life will never be taken from me. On the contrary, I will willingly lay it down, but nobody takes it from me. Which, of course, he did. He laid down his life. But nothing and no one could ever take his life. Nothing could threaten him. In this fallen, broken world, he was the embodiment of perfect shalom, and he wants that perfect shalom to be yours as well. We can live life to the full, embracing the challenges and hardships, the inevitable struggles and conflicts, and do so with tremendous joy and incomprehensible peace, knowing that nothing can ultimately harm us. Do you believe that? Nothing can ultimately harm you because you belong to God. Not one of our bones will be broken. 
This is what God wants for you. He wants, he wants your life to give off a powerful fragrance that, that overwhelms your house and your neighborhood and your family and friends, your workplace, everywhere, a fragrance of genuine love, of unshakable joy, and of incomprehensible peace. Heavenly Father, when you announced the coming of the Messiah, when you announced your coming into this world uh, in flesh and blood, you said he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that, at the birth, at your birth, when you became a human being, the angel sang glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus, you said, I have told you these things so that you might have peace. Your, your early followers told us, let the peace, over and over they said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Father, I pray that we would go away from here understanding and embracing the reality that you want us to have a peace that passes our ability to comprehend. It's found when we humbly come to you, recognizing that we are made in your image and that we deserve nothing, but you have get, decided to give us everything. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Father God, that that peace is available to each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.